Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon. We are watching His Dark Materials, Season 1, Episode 3, The Spies. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, or as Arithmetric on Twitter. And I am another one of your hosts. You might know me as Lizen Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, or LizenArborGold.com. Just to flag for everyone tuning in. We are not keeping with as we do on our His Dark Materials read-through, where we have non-spoilery content up top and then spoilery stuff from all three of the books and some of the Book of Dust content uh, at the end. This entire episode, uh, pretty much everything is fair game. Yeah, I won't spoil the Books of Dust in depth or anything, but I might allude to them or wink and be like, huh, that's interesting. That comes up. Just as the show is kind of just alluding and winking to it. Yes, I feel like we're like, it's like driving. You're supposed to go with the flow of traffic. I think we're going with the flow of traffic. Yeah, you know what's hard to do with going with the flow of traffic? I mean, like, I guess Lord Boreal's used to it, driving on that side, because <laughs> that maybe they drive on that side of the road in his world. But I tried to drive on the other side of the road. Mm-mm. It was a bad time. Everyone was holding what I call the oh shit handle, and they were like, Eliana, what are you doing? Yeah, no. I was about I was about to get us in an accident. No, I would not feel safe or comfortable, especially with you helming that, so thank you for letting me know. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, last week's episode was really strong. I left it feeling wowed, and this week's episode, I would say maybe as strong, not quite as uh, pow- but still pretty strong. I left it still going. That was an episode. <laughs> As opposed to what? I don't know, maybe feeling with, with like the opposite meh. of it not being an episode. Like that was a That was a not episode. That was I don't know, I I would just feel lame about it, man. I'd be like, that was alright, I guess. Like season yep. eight, episode three, Game of Thrones. Uh watching it after Ice and Firecon and everyone was like cheering. And just, like, standing up excited about the Night King. And I was just like, okay. Like, looking around going, what? Why is everybody cheering? That's how I felt. You know, part of it is because we were cheering about our friendship and everyone being in the room together. Mm. I think that was part of it. I really strongly do. Yeah. I, and the friends you made along the way. Exactly. But this episode is also about the friends that Lyra makes along the way. Like the Egyptians. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, I, I like that it opened up kind of like a cold open, right? Uh, the Egyptians ambushing the gobblers driving the van Lyra's in. She like looks at Tony Costa when he opens the back of the van. And in that moment, I was like, say something about the bung, say something about the bung. And she doesn't say anything about the bung. Say something about the bung. That's my uh, take on on that song. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh, yep. Yeah. yeah. And then we go from my song into the theme song of the intro <laughs> once more. That theme song slaps. Every week it gets better. Like, I was sitting on the couch doing some uh, reading and some writing about this episode for tonight for us recording, and I was, like, just bopping my head, like, humming it under my breath. It's in there. I feel like you weren't super into it the first time. No, I like it now. I do like it now. I wasn't sure what to think first, but now I'm like, okay. 
kind of. I liked it the first time and when I heard it, but every week I do get more and more hype as I hear it. It's growing on me, especially with the score later in the episode that we get when Lyra is trying to read the alethiometer. And it's kind of that really slower, uh, more bare bones, dramatic version of the score. And it was very good. Something I... Yeah. Just really soft, but like... Not, I don't know, it was good. It was a really great mm-hmm. slowed down version of the score. Did you notice, uh, so we've talked about how there's that metallic ring in the intro that folds out and how I think it's basically that metal alloy that we've talked about in the guillotine, the mm-hmm. silver guillotine, and also the metal alloy that is part of a certain knife that we'll see in the future, the subtle knife. It's great because we can just talk about it openly since we get all this book two content. I know. I'm so glad they're spoiling the book so I can. Going with the flow of traffic. Uh, it's not my fault. <laughs> blame BBC we didn't choose HBO. to be this way. It's all Bad Wolf's fault. Bad Wolf. <laughs> Did you notice, though, that when that metal, the metal alloy goes out in that circle, which I think I was right to suspect that's what it had to do with it because it forms into a knife up and down her spine when she's looking out at the worlds. You know, I didn't notice and I didn't understand what the note here was. I thought you meant in the opening scene, so I kept rewinding the opening <laughs> scene of the episode no, looking for this, show. and only now that we are speaking do I realize what you meant, and so I have not I have not noticed or paid attention to it yet, because I kept I tried to. Thanks, Eliana. an effort. Uh, I rewatched that scene a couple times, I'm like, where? Where is it? Oh my gosh. She's just wearing this uh, this dress. This, I Relationships are about communication and trust, you guys. They are. And I trusted Chloe. Uh, There's just a miscommunication, but right now you are witnessing us working out our relationship. Our bonds. Yeah. (laughs) On the air. (laughs) On the air. This is some, I don't know, Mari shit, right? So the next scene breaks out and it's Mrs. Coulter searching for heresy at Jordan. She has magisterium men tearing apart Jordan to find Lyra, looking for anything heretical to condemn them. They find the alethiometer books to leverage against Jordan, but the master calmly explains that it was her job to take Lyra from Jordan. If Mrs. Coulter lost Lyra, it's now on her. I really liked this scene. It's kind of akin to something that happens in the Secret Commonwealth. Won't spoil it, but it reminded me a lot of that. It's a little more inventive, right, for adaptive purposes. Great aerial shots. Uh, Other shots of the college as well here look great. The monkey in the firelight is a really cool shot with the the flame was just flickering in its fur. The monkey is great. The monkey is good. I'm I have been willing to set aside my differences to accept the monkey. The ultimate monkey. He is the ultimate monkey. I do think so. What what is that? Mean? Well, just that I didn't like him two weeks ago. I just thought his nose mm. was so ugly, and it still is ugly, but you can't change that. I have an ugly nose too. We're homies now. Me and this monkey. <laughs> Does anyone like their nose? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think so. There's that line Mrs. Coulter had that I really loved, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of this is about free thought and condemning free thought. And Mrs. Coulter says, if the thinking was clever enough, it would find a way to obscure itself from the magisterium. It was a great line. And there's, I think, a lot that can be taken from that. It's everything that we saw in that first scene with the librarian, right, where Lyra, you know, says, oh, let's read this. And he's like, no, 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 that's heresy. Like, we can't read that. It's not approved to read. And if the Magisterium finds out, our scholastic sanctuary will be at risk. And here they are. 
they overstepped their bounds, but also Mrs. Coulter is corrupt as hell, so she's also just, like, making it happen. Yeah, I, I thought what was interesting about this is this is her perspective because she's someone who was not allowed to necessarily be openly clever, right? Because the system was stacked against her as a woman, right? And she didn't necessarily obscure herself from the magisterium. She has done so in many, many other ways, but what she's done is she's just become found ways to make it work through that system to do, I don't know, her thinking. Yeah. But, I don't know, I think I get what she's saying to some extent, but also I think she's wrong. Because <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's the whole point of the Scholastic Sanctuary, right? The whole point of, like, the university slash college, it's not to, like, obscure thinking, right? Because you're supposed to shine light on it so that others can see it and you can react to it and, like, talk and have discourse and get better knowledge. And, like, I don't know, coming back to Scholastic Sanctuary, I think that we start getting layers of that second parentage reveal in this scene because the master tells Mrs. Coulter that she of all people should understand it. And then another aspect of the foreshadowing from within this episode, right, to like keep it all together, cohesive, is that Mrs. Coulter just keeps saying alethiometer and, you know, sets it up. So we also get continued characterization of Mrs. Coulter in this episode, right? I don't think we'll ever stop. She's such a compelling character, especially the way that Ruth Wilson has been playing her. And we see in the scene another another way of how Mrs. Coulter acts when she doesn't get her way, especially when it comes to Lyra. Because I like that the show has kind of brought this to the forefront of the series. We got a sense of it in the cave in the Amber Spyglass when Mrs. Coulter just like hands bats to her monkey to let it tear apart while she's like over there like being like, oh my god, I'm so exhausted. <laughs> but it's shown to us rather than told. And last episode when Mrs. Coulter didn't get her way, what she did was she took it out on the stolen children by getting her maternal fix, right? And then burning their letters and taking some sort of delight in that. And we get a cue that that's what's going to happen again here. Because Mrs. Coulter, once more, she just tears pages out of the book and throws it in the fire. Like, that's a thing that she just likes doing, right? In the same way that, I don't know, people like playing with their hair. She just throws papers into fire, like information. I don't know. And then her tearing Jordan College apart, we realize, isn't actually about finding Lyra, right? She realizes that the lithiometer and Lyra are missing. It's a tantrum. And she more or less admits it to Boreal as she leaves. She's like, oh, we're tearing it apart, but like, Lyra's not here. We gotta expand the search. And then I do love that the master tells Mrs. Coulter that she's already done the worst she could by losing Lyra, and it shows how much he hurts for it because he loves Lyra, but also, like, he's right in in a way that he doesn't realize. If Mrs. Coulter lost Lyra, it is her fucking fault, because who are the people who took Lyra? The gobblers. It's your fault. Yeah, they're literally your people. Yeah. Um, and throws the children's letters in the fire. It's obviously power, right? It's... Mm -hmm. uh, a lust for power and it's her having control something that she never got to have and she had to work very hard to actually get control her ripping out the pages in the book almost feels like her trying to erase the truth erase free thought and free thinking and free speech kind of you know with everything she's been saying in this scene it feels so much like an attack on free thought and it reminds me a lot of william mm -hmm. blake and some of the thematics that he puts in his poetry and in his art as well because he was also an artist uh, in the ancient days there's the summation of his work that was at its last exhibition that said hmm. that it was a relief etching with ink and watercolor on paper. And in his final days, he is said to have colored an impression of this work. And it has some angels on it, basically, it looks like. 
He's reported to have claimed it the best I have ever finished. Oh, it's it's Urizen, that's right. Uh, though small in size, it's be- it's become one of his best-known images. You've probably seen it before. I'll send you this in a DM, too. It's, so the central figure of the painting is Urizen. He represents the scientific quest for answers, and he measures the world below with his golden compass. They said the thing! Mm-hmm. This act symbolizes a threat to freedom of thought, imagination, and creativity. For William Blake, these were the cornerstones of humans' happiness. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like Philip Pullman agrees with this, but also he's like, nobody should be too imaginative or else you can't read the alethiometer. So I'm like, what, what, where do you fall, Philip Pullman? Yeah. But yeah, that's very fun. The golden compass. That measures truth. That does measure truth. Then you get a scene about Tony lying to his mom about finding Lyra. Not the truth. Tony brings Lyra home to the Egyptian camp, and the boys targeted the van with their own private intel on the gobblers, but he instead lies to Makos about it, saying, like, I don't know, we heard noises and we followed it. (laughs) Yeah, that was very much so a kid lying to their mom. It was an interesting dynamic, and you do get... Like, for as much as they're biffing it with Ma Costa, which we'll talk about because you know I'm furious and we'll get there. It's like my one big complaint, so I guess that's it. That's the one I'm honing in on. As much as I can complain about that, I can appreciate that they're setting up the dynamic of, you know, you're Billy's older brother. He trusts you. He looks up to you. Now Billy's missing. Now I've lost my baby boy's son. Now my other son is acting up and doing shit without telling me and lying to me and growing up. Now that his demon's settled, he's an adult. Things are changing. Uh, it's an interesting family dynamic, especially when you have such an incomplete family between Lyra and Coulter and Asriel. There's a really nice cut to Lyra and the alethiometer after Coulter was just talking about the alethiometer in the last scene. I really liked that. Uh, really great exposition with Egyptian people and their stories on their boats as Tony and Lyra kind of roll in on the boat. I almost shipped Tony and Lyra. I don't know what's happening with me. I was like, whoa, they are just young teenagers. I can't ship things that aren't Lyra and Will. Heresy. I mean, you could, like, I guess later on, right? I mean, that's what they told each other. They're like, dude, we gotta, like, live our whole lives. We gotta actually be there, you know, be present, have other people. We can't just, like, wait forever, right? So, I mean, it's not impossible. He's he's a little, I think, he's less older than her, right? Mm-hmm. I think the age gap between them seems a little smaller in yeah, the show. Yeah, and they've, they've aged Lyra up in the show, definitely. They've talked about how she's aged up just a couple years, and I can't spoil this for you. You have to get there on your own, but it's not Tony, but she does date Egyptian sometime. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, and as you said, I do love the scene Tony here has. I just like how he's having his teenage rebellion, but <laughs> we're doing it through this. And I think it is hard for Bacasa, like, you know, she's running a single parent household and she's like, fuck, one of my kids is missing and the other's going through puberty. Yeah. And oh my God. And to be fair, I mean, he is, he's trying to live up to that man role, right? And that's what it feels like. It is very coming of age, watching him want to go on these covert ops missions and try to bring good to their family name. It's kind of a very, you know, he's trying to be a big man. It's a lot of pressure, this coming of age. He's trying to be a big man, and he's trying to keep up with, like, his friends, some of whom are a little older. And I think that, you know, psychologists or whatever talk about how this is part of the adolescence, right? Where they try to find difference in their identity with their parents by, like, having different opinions and through that rebellion and doing different things, so... I also like that Lyra backs up Tony. It's such a kid code thing. She's like, yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. She's like, he saved me. Yeah, she's out there like, you know, like he might be my enemy on the streets, but today, today he's my friend. Today the bung is behind us. The bung is always below us. <laughs> this bung was beneath <laughs> us the whole time. Uh, uh, Lyra meets John Fa and Farter Coram for the first time. They know her, but she does not know them or trust them. She's super defensive because of this, but Farter Coram tells her they've always held respect for her dad, and they've known her since she was a baby. They all had to work together in surviving in the Great Flood. Coram tells Lyra that she's special, without the mention of Azriel or her mother, whoever her mother is, that while they like Azriel, she is something else entirely. She's remarkable on her own. He asks her if she'll help them find the missing children and stay. Yeah, seeing that they've known Lyra since she's a baby is, I think, another layer of the foreshadowing within this episode, tying it once more all together. I don't think... So something that was, like, a little annoying for me this episode is, like, how much Lyra's like, I don't trust you, I don't know you. And I don't think it's unrealistic for her to distrust Egyptians. I get it. It makes sense, especially after her previous traumatic experience with an adult and people she didn't really know. I feel that this is a thing that they have had Lyra do and act uh, because it's a stand-in for what really stood between Lyra and being open with the Egyptians in the books, and that is the bung, all right? <laughs> she was afraid to trust them because she was like, oh no, they hate me because of the bung and the time I tried to pull it out. And I think that the story needed the bung, and it was central to the plot. As facetious as we get with the bung, like... I do think you're right that there's a certain amount of that world building that was left out. Uh, the Golden Compass has that really cute intro scene where the Egyptian kids and Roger and Lyra are all like fighting in the streets. And I, I did kind of have hopes that maybe we would see another bit of that like reworked in its own way in the beginning of the, the show. But we didn't. I've moved on, I guess. But I, I did think it was important just to show... A, to show like just how young these kids are, right? They're juvenile. They're yeah. young. We get that feeling, obviously, with her and Roger. They focused in more on her and Roger. That's kind of the trade-off there, I think. And it's nice for that building. I know I, I see a lot of the building they're doing because they want it to hit, right? Like, when that betrayal goes through, it's got to hurt. And they want to pack this punch. Um, the Asriel stuff, you know, they're really softening him to the viewer's mind you know to make us be like oh Asriel he's okay he's all right so that when we get there and it happens everyone's devastated yeah I agree regarding wanting more of Lyra being a child right I, I thought that was just such a very wholesome scene even though it wasn't supposed to be wholesome they're like the children are straight up fighting but <laughs> that felt true to me like I would go out in the streets not like the streets but like I would go out and get into like tiffs with the other neighborhood kids and Turf then we'd all wars. sort it out yeah and then we'd all sort it out and then we'd all play together again like that just feels real to me and i think that a part of it as you said they treated it off to build her relationship with roger and from that building how lonely they were right as kids because mm -hmm. she's all like we were just orphans together he's my only friend my best friend in the world because I guess she's technically not friends with the other Egyptian kids, but in a way, like, if you play together enough, I think you're, in a way, kind of friends. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It felt like that, too, in the novel, that, like... Yeah. Even... And that that is something that feels amiss. Uh, that, that childishness in general, that kind of childish, whimsical quality that Lyra has in the mm. books, she feels a little too deep and a little too tragic in the show, and, like, you know, ten layers of... 
I don't know how to trust anyone when part of her was kind of just like, well, Pan, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to go to this next place and we're going to find Roger and we're going to figure it out. The darker tone might have something to do with that. And I do like it. I agree. But all this betrayal she's feeling now, I don't want to say it's overstated. I just maybe think it's like misplaced in certain spots. They're really building on that feeling. And like, I feel like there's a lot of little just childish antics in between that remind us of who Lyra really is. Like, right now it feels like tomorrow she's about to make out with Will with the fruit, okay? Like, it it feels like emotionally she's already in the third book. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like this Lyra... Lyra changes, right? She starts off as this little girl, and then by the third book, she has this understanding of life and its betrayals, and she feels like a goddamn jaded 29-year-old. Like... Yeah. Yeah. And... uh I don't dislike it. It's just a little different, yeah. as you said. And I think, again, it has to do with that tone. Um, and I do really like how they've built out the Egyptians and given them their own weight in their story. So I do like that. But, you know, I, what we needed was not just a betrayal. What we needed was a bung trail. And that's what's missing. <laughs> uh, Boreal then has a scene with a cleric. He chats with them at the Magisterium, who warns that there are consequences for the meddling of Scholastic Sanctuary happening at Jordan. Boreal's like, well, alright, but there's a rumor that turns out the Egyptians are the ones who actually have Lyra. And the cleric says, alright, officers are going to be dispatched on the situation now. They're doing a fantastic job, and I'm going to come back to this later too, of setting Coulter up as not really aligned with the Magisterium. Uh, We both know the direction they're going to take that in. It's just going to make the cave scenes, I think, pop really well. Like, it's very obvious. They're like, uh, Coulter is kind of out of control, Boreal, just so you know. Like, we don't really trust her anymore, and it's getting worse every day, and this isn't the first time I've had this chat with you, Boreal. Like, just letting you know, it's not getting better. This is not getting better. (laughs) I wonder to what extent. It's not shown, right? We don't have a point of contrast, because... We don't see anyone else doing crazy shit like Mrs. Coulter. But there is a, a, me wondering to what extent is it them being like, you gotta rein her in because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a little bit of that involved, it feels like. And they are mm-hmm. treating Boreal like he can do that. I and mean, as we learn, Boreal doesn't really control Coulter so much. He doesn't really care. He's like, whatever. He has, he has a whole different agenda, which we are going to learn yeah. more about in this episode, which I'm excited about. It's like, would the sex be as good if I rein her in? No. No. Well, maybe. No. Lyra and Pan then have a soul-to-soul. Lyra and Ma Costa chat. Pan wants Lyra to trust the Egyptian faction. And Lyra then trades out her Mrs. Coulter clothes for Egyptian basics, which I will say are in that reddish color, speaking to characterization and uh, clothing choices. Ma Costa teaches... Lyra, some tricks in the kitchen. None of them are actual cooking. It's making fires, which include Ma Costa also telling Lyra that uh, she could pass for Egyptian, and that if Lyra wants to grow up to be Egyptian, she can be whatever she wants to be in life someday. So, like, the opposite of the scene in the books? Like, the exact opposite? I was pretty surprised. Were you sitting there going, Chloe's gonna be shaking her head so hard? Because I was just, like, my jaw dropped. I was like, 
oh, I didn't realize it was going to hit you so hard. I was busy being like, uh. This was like a big thought I had of how, you know, we were talking a lot about this with Lyra in the books because she's always changing and adapting to whoever she's most traveled with. When she's with Coulter, she becomes her doll, which we'll talk about in a few minutes as well because I did want you to bring up the colors. Uh, I've seen a lot of color analysis of her outfits and you've talked about it a few different times, but I, I get that Makasa is supposed to serve as a contrast from Coulter in Lyra's life, but at what cost to Makasa's character? It's murkier every week. It's subservient to everyone else in the episode. Makasa is very moody and sad and uh, doesn't have a clear, like, I mean, she's the Molly Weasley in the books. It's very easy. That's what I don't get is this is the easiest character to pin. Okay, it's so easy. She's brusque. She's not very sweet in the books, right? She's a little uh, rougher around the edges, and she's a mom, a single mom, very single mom. She, you know, has had to make her way and has had to live and has kept up with this lifestyle as Egyptian with these boys, raising these boys. And uh, we learn later of her connection to Lyra, which we learn in this scene just a little bit in a couple scenes later of, you know, that my cost to watch Lyra as an infant when all the crazy crap was going down. Um, but my cost is like tough on the outside with a heart of gold on the inside. And I'm not seeing it here. I'm seeing like my cost smokes a pack of cigarettes a day and cries a lot. And then like watches her soaps at four and then sometimes cooks stuff and thinks about blowing things up. So I think that's part of why I'm wondering, I don't know, why they did that. Okay, so first of all, I, I don't love, I really don't love that Makos is like, Lyra, you can be Egyptian if you want. I'm like, I don't know if that's how that works. Yeah. Like, in the book, right. she is exactly saying the opposite and saying, hey, Lyra, you're kind of appropriating my culture. My people have suffered. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't the first time we've been targeted against like from the magisterium from people that our culture has been targeted our children have been trafficked like this isn't the first time these kind of things have happened to these people and they've lived and survived through it and that's what she says to her and says you can't just copy the outfit and understand our past and our pains and what we've built in this world mm -hmm. and in this yeah. scene they did the exact opposite and i just went but the scene literally says not this yeah, and they end up centering, I think, Lyra in a lot of the other Egyptian scenes from here on out, which we'll we'll talk about that in a bit uh, when we get to those scenes. But I, yeah, I agree. I she can't like know all of that. Like Lyra is here masquerading, right? As Egyptian, she can choose to not be one at any point in time. And while Egyptian, right, they can maybe do something else, right? That doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Who they are, just as even though Lyra doesn't like who her parents are, that doesn't change that those are her parents. Yeah, uh, it doesn't sure define where who she is as as Mrs. Coulter said last episode, but it doesn't change it. Yeah. Uh, regarding, I guess, the rest of Ma Costa's character, I I have been kind of wondering that, like, maybe they chose not to go the Molly Weasley route because I think. The idea of the mama bear, and the, which is, I think, an archetype that Molly Weasley is, to an extent, playing on, it, it is an archetype, right? And, and to an extent, maybe a stereotype. And I think maybe they wanted to portray a different idea of what motherhood could be, what it means to, what it means to be a single mother. Like, it's not fucking easy. And I don't think that she necessarily seems like 
run down in that way, but I think that it is difficult. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what they're trying to show here. And that Ma Costa, like, she's there trying to be a mother for her sons and trying to make sure that they don't fucking die doing dumb shit as Tony Costa does. Is wanted. I mean, like, he's a teenager. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I get it on both sides. Yeah, I get it on both sides. I just hate it, is all. So, yeah. So that's how I feel. It didn't ruin the episode. It just, like, takes away a little bit, you know, from the experience. It's just, like, bummer. It, it just could have been a little easier. It didn't have to be. And it, it had the HBO level of drama, okay? Like, that was good. Whatever. Yeah. It, there was some very obvious HBO kind of moments in this episode. Uh, definitely more music. Like when the Egyptians take off at some point, there's some music. And it's like, again, very Daenerys and her dragons. Like that's all it felt like. But some of the drama felt a little forced here for Ma Costa in a lot of scenes too. Yeah, I, some of the Egyptian like drama with Lyra running out, that that felt like mostly the scenes where Lyra is being like, I don't trust you felt forced. Me. Yeah. And I think again, it needed it needed a bung but anyways i kind of feel like lyra learning about this sparking powder right uh that ma costa shows her this is gonna come into play later on like maybe this is what she uses and she draws on this experience in bolvangar to blow stuff up at the station uh and i mean like she can still do whatever else she's doing but i think that like you don't learn a skill like that and devote a fun scene like that for it to have no payoff. Yeah, it was definitely building that. Uh, I thought that was so clever that they're building the moment in Bolvangar when she uses the flower and catches the flame. So we're definitely going to see that happen. And that's a real thing for those of you that didn't listen to our His Dark Materials episodes about the Northern Lights Golden Compass. We did talk about how this is like a big risk. Uh, people that work in mills might even know in grain factories that like if they hit the air at a certain rate because they're particles, because, you know, they are made of materials, of prime materials or prima materia, as we talked about last week, uh, they will ignite and blow up some shit. And Ma Costa taught her, so it's going to happen. I'll take it. So... Lyra is back in red. You have like fashion houred for Lyra in our episodes often uh, in the Golden Compass when we watch the movie in the books as well. You've talked a lot about Lyra wearing red and I very much so feel some little Red Riding Hood vibes here. She's being chased by the big bad wolf, by the wicked witch. Uh, there's definitely some wicked witch vibes. Big bad Wolf Studios. Yep. Big Bad Wolf Studios. You don't even know what that's from, do you? I don't know, but I know that it's from this series is from Bad Wolf Studios, right? Um, so Tranter, and in general, Bad Wolf has to do with Doctor Who, and they became their own uh. producing team and etc. production team. So uh, it, it originally originated from a phrase there, but I digress. Coulter turned Lyra into like her little porcelain Harlequin doll, her pet, as we talk mm-hmm. about with those copycat jewel tone outfits, right? That she kept wearing, but. Lyra's not wearing drab or darkened colors with Egyptians. She is put back in hues of red, keeping her still kind of that highlighted protagonist. Yes, and like, so she's in the reds, but speaking to something that you've talked about in our book episodes of Lyra trying on different identities, right? Because Lyra's not just wearing red, she ends up wearing like these little overalls that must have belonged to Makasa or still does, but maybe like folded up or something. Because instead of emulating how Mrs. Coulter 
dresses. Now she's emulating how Ma Costa dresses. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because she doesn't have a choice, but also be- this is a television show and there's visual storytelling happening. And I think that's a way that we can interpret that. Huh. Yeah, and it is very Macosta, you know, that you say it. Like, it's very it's very blending in, but not. It's an interesting way to keep the protagonist, you know, singular, but also put them in a new set of a place mm-hmm. and not look ridiculous. Yeah, and then we cut to Boreal going through his window again. Yes, I did find out what the real place actually is where this garden is, where this window is. It's called the Bla- the Blaze Orangery, and it is on the Blaze Castle grounds. It's a real-life setting they filmed in Bristol. Not, 420 not on the college. Yes, 420 Blaze Orangery. It. <laughs> it was not in the college. I know you're disappointed. It's mentioned in other famed pieces, like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. It was added onto in 1805 or 1806, so that's when this place that Boreal is going into first happened. And I guess the whole entire grounds and castle were restored in 1957, but I don't think the orangery was restored. I think the orangery was kept the same. So really beautiful place they're filming in for this gardeny mm-hmm. scene. It's very pretty. I really like that place. It's beautiful, and uh, yeah. it's very much so like a dead garden of Eden or like absolutely like very much so gardeny and like it reminds me of something in La Belle Sauvage without spoiling there's a garden they see and it almost reminds me of that yeah I think there's a lot of garden stuff of course going on and it makes sense right based on the story being based on Paradise Lost so they've been having some fun with that and then when Boreal steps through the window, right, he, he sees his car. <laughs> it's got a boot on it. He's living the city life, dude. Yeah, I like those details. I'm like, that's fucking real. Welcome, Boreal. Yeah, he's out there <laughs> on his smartphone. He's got a boot on his car. He's like, God damn it, I gotta get to work in like half an hour. And <laughs> so I want to cut back here. We cut back from the Boreal going in the window immediately to... The most important part of the television show, His Dark Materials, which is Sophanax the cat, Sophie, affectionately, Farter Coram's demon. Just kidding, it's Lyra and Farter Coram having a chat, but Sophanax is so no, prominent. Chloe needs it. She really thinks that Sophie is the most important part of the show. Sophie is the protagonist of this whole show. I know you like think I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. I love this cat. I want a pet. Chloe, only cat. Only cat. Okay, not to be taboo about it, but like if it wasn't taboo, I would touch that cat. Oh, I would pet. I mean, Lyra strongly wants to. It seems like a very soft cat. It is a soft cat. It is the kind of cat I want to pet, and it's so audible. What does it mean about Fartercorum that everyone's like, "Ooh, let me touch your cat, dude"? Fartercorum has some game. I mean, look at Seraphina. Yeah. Carter Coram pulls. Yeah, he pulls. So Coram works to earn Lyra's trust in this scene. He tells her that Mrs. Coulter isn't as powerful as she thinks, and they talk about their demons. Coram was surprised that Coulter's demon is a monkey, doesn't know why still, and he was also surprised that Tony's demon turned into a hawk. And then Pan is like, I want to be a mole when I grow up. Ten points to Slytherin for my Patronus. Finally, it came in handy. I, w- I got a mole, if you recall. You took the quiz thing, right? On on the BBC, no, I, the Patronus. Oh, okay. oh no, I was talking about my real Patronus, like my Harry Potter. I just one. saw that you started doing it and then you abandoned it. I did start to, and then it never responded to us on our account, so I did it from my account, and it gave me a cat, I believe, actually. Oh, I got a gecko. A 
that could work for you. Lyra smacks back to Fartercorum and she's like, yeah, Pan's going to be a mole so he can burrow underground and stay safe from all you grown-ups. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, uh, it, it was pretty funny. She doesn't want Pan to settle, right? And this is a discussion she has and also comes up in the books. But Fartercorum hints that when it does happen one day, maybe she'll be happy. Then Lyra asks, what about the people? Like, aren't they ever disappointed when they find out what their demons are? And he says, you know, he didn't know what Sophie was going to settle as, but that he would not change a hair on Solfinax's head. Oh, he even said Solfinax! I'm, I'm the lead, Dude. I am the president of the Solfinax fan club, sorry, and this is just... No one loves this cat as much as I do, I'm pretty sure. No. Well, except for Farder Quorum. Yeah, I don't know about that. Not no. as much as I do, listen, Quorum. <gasps> Van Trexel, if that is your real name, do you even deserve your demon? I like the moment that he said that sometimes I imagine her different, mm-hmm. right? Because, I mean, as, as we've discussed, the demons are them, right? And I think that's just such a very true thing. Like, we've discussed before how I'm like, yeah, I kind of would want to know what my demon is. But, and as an adult being like, yeah, it makes sense for them to settle versus how I felt when I read this when I was 13. I was like, I don't want my demon to fucking settle. That's lame. But I mean, you settle someday as an adult, right? You grow up. Yeah. You you figure out who you are and or maybe you don't and you're discontented. But of course, as Farger Quorum says, sometimes you imagine your demon different and sometimes you imagine yourself different, right? Like there's uh, the tree that's referenced by Sylvia Plath talks about seeing all the possibilities of herself and all like the fruits and the branches and who she could be and which fruit she could pick and i think that that's what it means to imagine your demon different it's not bad or wrong it's just like what if i were this kind of person instead you're not yeah and happiness is understanding nah not i thought it was interesting that uh lyra asked specifically if there are ever people that are disappointed with their demons. And I think that the series does kind of start to tackle this question later on. We kind of see something happen where after the third book, after there's separation that happens, I mean, we learn from the Book of Dust and we learn from the first and the second one from Commonwealth and La Belle Sauvage that this isn't, I wouldn't say rare, it doesn't happen often, it's a seldom thing, but it is something that happens that demons and their people do not get along. So it was a very tender moment, especially when he was like, I would not change a hair on Sophonax's head. That connection is just mm-hmm. so important. And I think that's another thing this scene is doing. It's telling us how important this connection is, right? Between human and demon. Very, mm-hmm. very sacred. Which will make what happens to the children at Bullvinger that much more disgusting when mm-hmm. we really get the real view of it. Yeah. You know, as you were saying about people being unhappy with what their demon is or disconnected in their emotional way. I, that's true in real life, right? There are people who hate themselves. Yeah, or like they don't won't acknowledge like who they are, right? And they're, or they're not happy with it. And I'm not saying that's not like people should never try to improve themselves, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that Pan thinks he would be a mole, which ends up being quite different from what he becomes in the end, which is a pine marten, which I think, like, spends a lot of time in trees, right? Mm-hmm. And shows that Lyra thinks she's going to be one thing and will be another. 
And, like, I don't know, you all know what fucking moles are, right? They live underground. And in one sense, this does end up being true of Lyra's story for a brief bit. She's the girl who goes underground into the underworld. But the rest of her human life, she chooses to specifically not be a mole. She chooses to live that life and not die. She's got to be above ground, right? Mm -hmm. That pine martin amongst the trees. Yeah. In the next scene, Boreal meets with his informant, Thomas, who reveals a photo of a certain suspect. Thomas has a data record of Dr. Stanislaus Grumman, cross-referenced with one other person, Colonel John Perry. Perry was on a government-funded science expedition in Alaska when he disappeared. Before that, he spent 14 years in the Marines, meaning he's not actually from Lyra's world. He's from the world that's similar to our world that Boreal keeps slipping into. He doesn't understand how. Boreal is like, he has a demon. People from this modern world don't have demons. Interesting. Thomas knows his last location, which probably isn't helpful because it's kind of been a while since that knowledge happened, but he has other valuable information too, like that John Perry slash Stanislaus Grumman has a wife that's mentally ill and a son that's in and out of trouble. He questions why Thomas never worked up the courage to follow to the other world after him, and Thomas says it frightens him. Boreal says he overcame that fear. But Stanislaus is more fearless and has seen more than even Thomas or Boreal has seen together, and Boreal wants to know what he knows. He leaves, he sends out a text to meet someone, and walks through worlds. I'm headbanging right now. Ugh. Dude, that scene slapped. Ugh. I li- anything with John Perry is just like, what? It's so smart. It's so smart. My little boy. Ugh. The scene is brilliant. Ugh. This is a brilliant adaptive choice it's brilliant everything with lord boreal so far has been brilliant it's just so smart it's the smartest way like it's gonna start off season two with a pop like we can start subtle knife scot-free we don't have to worry about any of like the backstory we know it you start season two and it makes sense you're like oh my god that's will he's being chased by these dudes yeah and like now you know how the dudes fucking found him right (sighs) and like it's more of a slow reveal that the whole time the Magisterium has been hooked into this power playing and scheming and experimenting and the corruption and all that. Like, seeing it start and putting this into Charles in the beginning is so smart. His subtle knife arc is so much more compelling than, like, this crusty old dude with a snake demon and a cowboy hat, right? Yeah. This adds just, I don't know, it's just overwhelmingly cool to see this happen. I also am wondering, though, are they giving Thomas too much characterization? Is he gonna die soon? I mean, probably hacker like hackers like this always fucking die, yeah. right? Like, didn't that happen in in what was it, House of Cards? Yeah, yeah. Those characters always die. Sorry, spoilers, House of Cards. But I assume everyone's caught up if you're if you ever actually intended to watch it. Well, actually, I didn't watch the last two seasons. I didn't care, but I assume everyone knew that. I mean, he's probably got it. He's like not important. He's not in the plot. Yeah, I'm really excited for Lord Boreal to meet Lyra in the museum and for her to not recognize him, like. Uh, it's gonna be so good but yeah like as you said i've been really loving the way they've been adapting him it gives us actually a great contrast for mrs coulter because both of them are agents of the magisterium in different ways but they're also in their own ways disobeying the magisterium they're different they've got different people that they're searching for for different reasons they're very they're very fun this is some of the I think Lord Boreal and Mrs. Coulter are some of the best character work that they're doing. 
Yeah. And there's like obvious connotations behind Lord Boreal having a snake demon, right? Like that comes through in the books, but there's, I think, a lot of really great framing of it in the show. Like he emerges from that little island in Oxford with a tree behind him. It's a very small little garden in, in this island, right? And the serpent. It reminds me, right, it makes me think of the serpent slithering out of the Garden of Eden, away from the Tree of Knowledge. And he keeps asking Thomas for more knowledge. Like, literally, the line from him is, I want to know what he knows. I want to know where he crosses. I want to know what he has seen. And, like, it's the serpent tempting others to find forbidden knowledge because he's literally like, Thomas, you can do it. You can break in and hack more illegal shit for me. He himself is starved for that knowledge. He wants to know what Stanislaus Grimman has knows. It, it's out of his reach. And then you have that detail like of what you pointed out last time, right? In the literal visual framing of Lord Boreal. This is just really fun. Like one of our last shots of him again is also through a window. It's through Thomas's window pane. And I think it is really important for Lord Boreal to be needling Thomas about like never crossing from his world through the window because I think that discussion of courage is kind of the way that Pullman wants us to interpret Lord Asriel and his like very cool big cat demon but I mean fuck Lord Asriel and it's also how he wants us to interpret Stanislaus Grimmin right and all of these explorers even though technically Grimmin did it on accident in the books mm-hmm. But by playing this up, it it sets us up as viewers to interpret that Lyra, when she eventually decides to cross into a new world, alone but not alone because she has Pan, like doing so as a child is a huge act of courage. Oh, absolutely. It really sets her up to be on that same playing field as Asriel. It goes on that Lyra does things. She's on the same playing field as her dad with the stuff that she does and learns. She does things that Asriel couldn't even imagine doing, right? in her time because he's too busy and wrapped up in power um he's like i don't have time for you he literally said that for her. yeah he's like i have to wage a war on god spoiler alert and <laughs> and something else you just said really <laughs> stuck out to me is that he is needling thomas for information right he's using thomas is he's nagging like, thomas now that i say it he has to kill thomas in this season like i almost guarantee you mm-hmm. thomas is going to get killed by boreal and we'll see the snake demon slither out of Boreal's sleeve afterwards, probably menacingly, um, because he's using him for this information. And then he's lording it over him and, like you said, kind of negging him and being very... This is his power play, right? Like, this is him saying, I'm a powerful man, Thomas. You're a little bitch boy. You would <laughs> never follow me. Like, I have big Boreal dick energy, Thomas. Thank you for your uh, information, but it takes very much bravery to go across the world that you can never do, Thomas. Yeah, I will say Thomas has a nice-ass house, though. Oh, yeah, very nice. I love the water. I was like, I would love to come out and go on a little boat ride in a little rowboat. Maybe one called I La think you were saying with Thomas. I was like, oh, Yeah, okay. with Thomas. I would love to go on a little rowboat <laughs> oh, ride with oh, Thomas. Sure. Before he dies. Thomas probably has interesting things to say, but like what you were saying about him dying because of Lord Boreal, for some reason I didn't put those things together when you're talking about Thomas dying, but there's something about that, right? The serpent tempting him to eat from the fruit of knowledge, gain that knowledge, and then killing him for knowing too much. Mm -hmm. 
I see something like that. There's something interesting, I think, around that. Because it is a power play for knowledge. Who gets the knowledge? Who has the knowledge? Who keeps the knowledge? We see that with Asriel when he presents it to the scholars and they're biting at this knowledge like fish, you know, just like leaping into the air going, what do you mean? What do you mean? This is heresy, but tell me more. Um, You know, he's offering it on a platter and they're eating it up. And that is something that Pullman is critiquing, right? Like, how come only one person gets to keep it all? And as you said, that power imbalance because... Yeah. Why would God punish Adam and Eve for knowing more? And that's something that Pullman is questioning throughout the whole thing of like, why would knowledge be sinful? Yeah. And that whole idea of who controls power, who controls knowledge, who deserves that knowledge. Knowledge is power. Yeah, knowledge is power. Power is knowledge. Power is power. So France is bacon. Benjamin reveals the gobbler's direction. Lyra tells the group where to look for Mrs. Coulter's evil plans if they happen to raid her apartment. Fartercorum's like, you're absolutely not going to go do that because that would risk them finding out everything about where we are, us having Lyra. Fartercorum's like, we have it really good right now, you guys, so please don't fuck it up. Um, And as if on cue, the Magisterium police force arrives to search the boats on a tip that Lyra is aboard. Lyra has a close call, but stays in hiding until they're gone in Makosta's boat. They have that payoff right within the same episode of Lord Boreal giving that tip off. I I did find it interesting that the police officer has like that vicious, very sniffing dog demon, right? Because subservient, still vicious. Also... They don't explain why the demons couldn't find her through the wall, right? It's explained in the books. I wonder if it's just a scene that was cut out for timing reasons or something, right? Because Cedarwood apparently has a soporific effect mm-hmm. on demons in the books, and that's why the officers can't find Lyra there. And it is actually true because Cedarwood has sedative properties. It's like can be used to decrease heart rate and use in aromatherapy. And we talked about this in our third episode for the Northern Lights Golden Compass, chapters seven through nine. Um, I, it's funny because we called that out pretty specifically. And I did see someone the other day on Reddit actually say something like, oh, they didn't even say anything about cedar. So I'm glad that we aren't the only ones that noticed it. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, can't win them all. It's, like, not actually that important. It's not, but it would have been cool. It it could have been something to slip into conversation. Come on. Yeah, give me the fan service. Right. You know, there's a lot of those moments that I'm just like, it's right there and you know it is. Yet you Mm -hmm. still have chosen to say only your sister. Every time. God damn it. There's a couple of those this episode, actually, too, that I'm gonna probably bitch about a little, but whatever. Where's the fun without me bitching? (laughs) Chloe throughout the episode, only cat, only cat. (laughs) In different in different ways, surprisingly, it means different things <laughs> at different times in this episode. Only so funny. So we get a <laughs> we get a scene of Mrs. Coulter in Lyra's bedroom in her. I, I like how in this these notes Chloe has listed in her flat, which is you know how they say it over across the pond. <laughs> I have a friend uh, that I work with that is from across the pond. Wow. And yes, uh, very worldly. I see her often. She works in commercialization and visits me often. And whenever she's hanging out with me at work, uh, I adapt to whatever she's saying, right? So she always will be like, well, do you want to go get a pint after work? And I'm like, of course. Do you want to go get a pint? You know, I, I, mirror, I mirror her back. <laughs> so I, maybe this is me subconsciously taking after my friend right now in her flat. I like it. It's like you wearing overalls. Oh my like god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but saying flat. It's the same it's the same energy. 
I continue to love the complexity that this show is bringing to Mrs. Coulter's character. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've kind of discussed it before. We see how divided Mrs. Coulter is about her own feelings. But in the scene where she's like tearing shit apart, she and her demon are actually together. And I think this is the side of her, of course, that she doesn't let the world see. Not even the viewers, and that's why the monkey, when is together with her, closes the door. And I'm going to come back to a little more about this in a bit. Ma Costa brings Lyra out of hiding, and she reveals a big one. Uh, Lyra freaks out on her and is like, why would I trust you or them or anyone, especially after Mrs. Coulter? And what does Mrs. Coulter want with me? I can't trust anyone. Everything is crazy. I'm like 10 years old. What is this? Um, I'm 13 years old. What is this? <laughs> literally, I love that meme so much. It's literally Lyra right now. Uh, and finally, Ma Costa reveals that Mrs. Coulter is. Can you give me a drum roll? This is a big one. Lyra's mom. Your no mom. Your sister. Um. <laughs> Yes, Ma Costa tells her the infamous backstory, missing a handful of details, so I may embellish a little bit, because what is a Lyra birth story without embellishment? Lyra herself would argue that it needs embellishment. Just saying. Just putting it out there. Uh, Mrs. Coulter was married to an influential man, Edward Coulter, fell in love with Asriel during her travels. They thought they could get away with it, and that Edward would never figure out that Lyra was not his daughter except... Lyra looked a little too much like not Edward Coulter. So Edward figured it out and wanted to kill the child. Definitely some LaBelle Sauvage parallels coming out here. Because men have pride. Asriel kills Edward. She says he fought him to death in the show. What's that? That was weird. I uh, mean, it, as Lyra says in the books, right? There were swords involved. Oh my god, it was a gunshot or two. But... <laughs> Asriel had to give up everything to the law in the loophole that he was defending his property, but Edward was legally avenging his wife being violated. So Lyra was placed into a nunnery after being in the care of a certain Egyptian nurse that may or may not have been Ma Costa, and during the Great Flood, Asriel, quote-unquote Malcolm, stole her away and brought her to Jordan College, Malcolm, in Scholastic Sanctuary. And there is a really nice line that I will at least give it this, Yes, I'm really mad about Ma Costa's characterization. No, I'll never stop bitching about it. But I did like this line when she says, I just want to keep you safe. I didn't manage it before. Let me manage it now. And there's a part of that line that kind of makes you think, like, she's she's kind of singing about Billy, too. Yeah. In the, in the books, right? And I actually really like that they split this up, that they split up this reveal. In, in the show, not, one's not better than the other. I just think it's a, it's a good adaptive choice, especially because that way, you know, you, you get two out of it, and the, the visual medium where people are carried along with it is a little different. In the books, though, it is still with the Egyptians that she gets this reveal. I, I do think it is better coming from Malkasa than it is from John Fa or Farder Coram. And uh, it, it kind of makes me think, right? Interestingly, when she gets these reveals, it's along these rivers with Egyptians. And it kind of reminds me to wax poetic a little bit of in Greek mythology, there's a goddess called Nemesine, and she allegedly has her own river called Nemesine. Uh, and in the afterlife or so, people can drink from, there are two rivers, there's actually a b- bazillion fucking rivers, right? 
but there are rivers, there's Nemesine, and there's Lethe, and if you drink from the river of Nemesine, you get your memories back. If you drink from the river of Lethe, you forget. You forget it all, and you're, like, ready to go be reincarnated or some shit. And in this moment, where Lyra, in both the books and the show, learns about her parentage, right? It, it, it's on this river. She's regaining that memory that she didn't have. The River of Lethe actually gets referenced in Paradise Lost, which I think is interesting. There, It's a few lines down from iconic lines such as, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But wherefore, let me then, our faithful friends, the associates and co-partners of our loss, lie thus astonished on the oblivious pool. The oblivious pool here that's referenced means Lethe and how it obliviates your memories. And, I mean, these are famous things, rivers that are referenced. I also wanted to talk once more about the Divine Comedy for no fucking reason. We actually referenced <laughs> it more in our other episode, but I just wanted to talk more about how Dante invented his own fucking river uh, for all this called Yunoe. And again, I would like to stress that the Divine Comedy is the ultimate erotic fanfiction, and if there's anyone who knows anything, like, I, I never want to hear anyone criticize, especially female authors again, for self-inserts, but literally, it's Dante in the Divine Comedy being horny on Maine because he puts his love interest <laughs> in it, alright? He puts literally real-life love interest in it and uses real his real name, and I just, that's all. That's how I feel about the Divine Comedy. Yeah, I, I feel like it's not fair to rag on anyone for that because there are so many men that have made these ridiculous self-inserts, even Pullman a little guilty of it in some of the new books, in the books of dust, so good call, though, absolutely, because... The rivers in general, especially for the Egyptians and especially with La Belle Sauvage, when you get deeper into that book mm-hmm. someday, Aliana. Um, <laughs> someday. <laughs> someday. Hey, Thanksgiving's coming up. I could do it during this break, theoretically. I would be thankful if you wow. did. Wow, I'll do this. I'll do it for you. I want Chloe Aww. to be thankful. I would be thankful if you finished the book, Eliana. Cut <laughs> Wow, the way she said that. <laughs> Listeners. Did I just culture it a little bit? Are you a little afraid? I just like <laughs> a little you're like a lithiometer. If you don't finish the book, Eliana, we will have a confrontation that I will win. Okay? Is what I was saying. Her cat demon is probably stronger than allegedly my gecko. Your gecko. <laughs> Fucking gecko ass fuck is that? bitch. <laughs> I need insurance for this confrontation. <laughs> Anyways, great call. Great references to the rivers. The Egyptians take a lot of strength from the rivers, and they know more about the rivers than pretty much anyone in this story. So the only thing that I didn't love about this reveal, I think it's fine. I like the reveal fine enough. The only thing I didn't love was actually that Ma Costa revealed that she was the Egyptian nurse, and I I liked Mm-hmm. The way that Fa and Cora revealed, like, oh, but don't tell her because you know how Ma Costa can get. But yeah, she was the nurse. Yeah. Uh, She's just like a different person in the show. I guess. I'm accepting it. Well, I would accept it, but then how would you get to hear me bitch week after week? So. <gasps> I just. The scene is so angsty. Yeah, it is. Which is, again, not untrue of that age, but also it's like, oh, so angsty. Yeah. It's just dark and angsty. Yeah. Then we have Mrs. Coulter getting jumpy. That. Right? <laughs> Lo- Chloe wrote these. <laughs> Not me. 
give her credit. She stands on the balcony of her flat. She's tightrope walking around before sending out the spy flies, which have learned Lyra's scent from her dress. This was cool. It was a cool little mini scene. Uh, the spy flies looked very cool, very technical mm-hmm. and metallic. Uh, it's straight up a fly my pretties moment with the Wicked Witch setting out the monkeys, like, shot for shot. That's what this was. This yeah. was Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch setting out the monkeys. And they're pushing the whole jumping off the edge thing again. I can't wait to see this actually happen someday. It'll be very meta, if you will. Yeah. Very I hope Metatron. Oh, wow. Metatron. Metatron. I actually heard the term Metatron used recently in Good Omens, which is its own different take. It has its own different takes on biblical stories. Mm. Mm. So I'm actually not sure what they say about this in La Belle Sauvage, surprise. But I like how Ma Costa and this story frames that Mrs. Coulter was conflicted about keeping Lyra. Like, it sounds as though she kind of had a choice in deciding, so do I just keep having this baby or not? And and her deciding, like, yeah, it's fine. I can totally get away with this and try uh, indicates some level of actually wanting Lyra. And, like, seeing all the other shit that Mrs. Coulter gets away with, I think that in this world where I assume... I assume that abortions are not permitted by the magisterium. I don't actually know that, mm-hmm. right? There have been different different attitudes towards it throughout time, even within Christianity. I think she could have gotten away with having an abortion if she did want that. And in the scene, begin, I think we begin to see a little more about like why Mrs. Coulter would have done something to be further from her demon or to feel more separated from it, but not entirely. Like We've discussed in some of our book episodes the difference between the body and the spirit and the soul where the body houses the spirit, which is what ends up going to the underworld. And then that the demon is representative of the soul, which is the part of the humans that feel sensation. It's a very much a tether to the world. And whatever happened, I think Mrs. Coulter, maybe because it was too painful, whatever happened or something else, right? She's so distant and hurtful to her demon because she doesn't want to feel. Mm-hmm. And she's spiraling right now and beginning to self-destruct especially as she very explicitly goes against the magisterium and like Mrs. Coulter clearly isn't good. She is explicitly like a bad person and what she's doing right now and to herself isn't good either. But I think that the the sensation of wanting to turn off your feelings and forget hurtful things or just not have to feel them is like, if that's not relatable, I don't know what is. You know, when we first talked about that theory of, Coulter possibly being separated from her demon back when we talked about it during the Northern Lights and Golden Compass. That was kind of the lens that made me stop to think about her character more. It was what really made Uh me understand the complexity that if this is true, if that metallic scent is really the metallic scent of the blade and that she was experimented on or she chose to take the experiment because it would stop the pain. um, It very much so frames her desire for Lyra, which obviously she doesn't know how to desire Lyra in a healthy manner. It's very abusive, Uh very psychotic. Uh, But she wanted Lyra, and I think uh, LaBelle Sauvage doesn't perfectly cover it, but it does discuss it a little bit that Mrs. Coulter is with the Magisterium in pursuit of getting Lyra back. She wants Lyra too, but we don't get Mrs. Coulter's side in this story. We really don't. You're not going to get probably... I didn't get what I wanted out of it 
in terms of that to understand how she really truly felt. But I think we don't need it because if you read this main trilogy, you see how she really feels like psychotic feeding her drugs, you know, to like keep her down so that she doesn't run away just so she can keep her love. It's like me with my cats, right? Like sometimes I just pick Uh, them up and I'm like, stay with me. I love you forever. You know? And like uh, Jaharis will be like, no mom, I do not want your love. And he'll try to squirm away, and I'm like, no, I'm just gonna love you forever. Like, it's the same kind of thing, but you just see that, like, she wanted to keep Lyra, and Asriel did not. You know, likening it to you, and, like, now I'm worried about your cats. No, it's just, like, Jaharis doesn't like doing things. Like, hugging. I'm worried about your cats. <laughs> They're uh, fine! Boreal-, Boreal meets with a new informant. He meets with a guy and gives him an envelope of photos... Who who are these photos of? They are uh, Chloe. my baby boy, my son. Also my baby boy. I, we birthed. We birthed him. Primarily, you and I birthed yep. him. Will Perry. Yep. And no one should ever touch him, and they should leave him alone. Yep. Um, and Boreal tells the guy to watch this kid and his mom closely. How dare you? We too will be watching him closely, so watch the fuck. Yeah, oh. I'll be watching you, Stranger. Boreal. And Stranger Guy. Stranger Danger. Yeah. Yep. Uh, this guy isn't even Thomas. I'm like, who is this guy? Um, yeah, who who are you? Do you even go here? Really good stuff, adaptively speaking. This is we're seeing the other side of what happened and why Will is being watched and chased. Yeah. Wow. I did kind of always wonder. I mean, like you kind of get an idea, right? Like they're after him because of John Perry, but also like this is good. This is good. But that's kind of the mystery of it because now we're gonna know and Will won't, right? Because he doesn't understand. And that's kind of something that I really liked about Will's plot when you first meet him is he's like, I literally do not know why these people are after my bitch ass, but I do know my mom has had issues forever and it's probably her fault and my dad, well, who knows about him. Yeah, and I think we'll still be able to understand that about yeah. him. But now it's just even more like, oh, you poor boy caught up in all this shit. It feels like there's a reason for it now. It does. Some of these mysteries being unraveled sooner are really going to pay off, I think. I like it. I also like, very minor detail, but again, really grounds the story. Lord Boreal is eating, he's got like a little thingy, right? And he's eating his fucking chips. And by chips, I mean fries because that's what they call them once more across the pond chips oh like the flat (laughs) yes like the flat like the flat but by chips we mean french fries and it feels fucking real man it's got little fucking chippies get on the other side of the river amazing yeah i mean he just needed a pint to go with that and oh you're right he could go get his pint and go to the flat and wear a jumper fish with it yeah, wear a jumper. I'm running out. Do... I'm sorry. I don't have any more. Uh, yeah. Be five hours ahead. <laughs> all, sorts of, all sorts of things. Yeah, he really is just winning in this. <laughs> Truly. And then we have the roping, in which Lyra gives an impassioned speech about Billy and Roger and stopping Mrs. Coulter. And John Fogg gives his own speech in Farter Corvusis, because they're going north. All the Egyptians are to send their fighters there. I really liked my rendition of John Fa calling out Raymond. But you know, this was like it wasn't as a I think seething and dramatic as my my rendition from the books. No, but I do think your rendition in general was a little better in some ways. I'm gonna break it <laughs> down you. right now. Thank um, thank you everyone. Uh give me the Emmy Award. I did die Pass laughing me. though. I was like, sit the fuck down, Raymond. 
the whole time. Like, I was, like, dying. My hand was over my mouth, like, Raymond's in it! Uh, I thought it was really cool they used one of the guys that we had already seen above on deck as Raymond, right? Like, they even are taking these extra background characters and turning them into people of the plot, which I thought was nice. Yeah. Uh, The scene is great because of that. Uh, I I do wish they would have used more of the book speech for John Fa because it's right there. Yeah, I was, like, waiting to compare my actual performance. I really was. <laughs> I honestly was. I was, like, waiting for him to be, like, to be like. so how well did I say Raymond? How close is it to oh the way God. that this John Fa is going to perform it? I was surprised that they didn't use more of his book speech, you know, of striking fear in their hearts. Like, he used, like, there were certain themes that matched and certain, like, phrases that were similar but they like changed the speech and I don't know. I just really liked his whole position on justice in the books and like how, you know, yeah. like we'll save our kids first and then we'll get the vengeance and, you know, bring justice down. But like only if it's the t- right time, like we're not wasting our own kind for this. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's partially because they gave the Azrael reveal of like him helping out with the floods a little bit earlier in this mm-hmm. episode. But like, I personally don't know if I love the adaptation of Lyra Mm-mm. being part of the speech. I hated it. I Not hated it. I guess that's a little dramatic, but I am dramatic. But I don't think it... I, I think it works well in the context of the books for this exact reason. I felt like it was just not right. It feels intrusive and not right. And I understand why, because they want to, of course, give Lyra and Daphne Keene a little bit more of that role and show who she is, that she's standing up for what's right. But I think... What was important here is that the Egyptian people, including Lord Fa, decided amongst themselves that they had to defend Lyra, right? Because it wasn't just about the Egyptian children. The The morally right thing to do is that they defend all children. They don't pick and choose mm-hmm. because they are above the people who keep who keep them out of the system, right? Who choose to not look out for Egyptian children just because they're Egyptian children. So what, are they going to do the same thing to Lyra? Just because she's not an Egyptian child. And I think that that was important, that this is a part that centers that Egyptian culture. And I think that's part of why I didn't like the insertion of Daphne Keene's speech. And I think it was a perfectly fine and well-executed and well-written and performed speech. I just uh, don't love what it means for that story and and the Egyptian culture. Yeah, and I did get tears in my eyes either way, right? Like, there was emotion in this. Yeah. Uh, I, I do like the casting for John Fa now. I think the casting for Farter Quorum and for John Fa is really good. Uh, I think the show is mostly well yeah. cast. You know, I don't have any big issues. Uh, the emotion was totally there for this. I did like the touch where John talked about how the Magisterium has made them the villains in this. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a good touch because they're they're being persecuted. They're being they're the ones who are most maligned. How could they when they are the victims? Mm-hmm. And then after the roping, we have a scene with the deck and Benjamin and Tony. They escape to go on a secret covert ops mission. Lyra reads up on her leafometer, catches Tony leaving. She's like, "I want to come with. I'm a kid. <laughs> I want to go." <laughs> But Tony's like, uh, no. It's a really cute scene, though, too, because she's nagging. She's like, I'm going to tell your mother right away, Tony Costa. She's so like, if I'm gonna you don't. Scream. She's like, I'll scream, Tony Costa. I'll scream. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, there are these little <gasps> moments of Lyra that we're getting like that, that are, they feel very much like Lyra. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah, and then Lyra, though, at least she's like, all right, if I can't come, she gives them the layout of Mrs. Coulter's apartment. Yep, and off they fuck. Off they go. Off they off they go. <laughs> it works. It's a made-up whatever scene, but it works, I think. I do like the scene because, again, like the way that they've been building Tony Costa. It, of course, these are moments built into this fantasy world, but this feels like a very real teenage experience to me. Just as we were discussing that some of the scenes with Lyra's childhood, like, in the books feels like a real childhood scene. This feels like a real teenage scene to me. Like it's his friend Benjamin pulling up in his car, honking outside, like texting him, be like, yo bro, I'm out your window. Let's go. But it's like way more difficult because everyone has to sneak out on fucking boats. Like I was looking at Benjamin trying to get into his boat to go away. I'm like, that seems like an endeavor. Yeah. It did feel very teen movie. I did like that. So maybe that's yeah. where we're getting a little bit of the childish antics in a way, but yeah, they go on a joyride, right? Yeah. Like, in the big city, but only for, like, a way more dangerous mission that ends in death. Yeah, so that's um, pretty much a plot point in most dramas, I mean. Yeah. Teenage Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Someone dying from it? Fun. That that does that does happen yeah. in these movies, though, and, like, yeah, Tony's testing his boundaries. I don't know. I like, I like all of this alongside Lyra's growth. Especially because, like, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Lyra falls asleep working at the alethiometer. It began to move for the very first time. That was a cool scene. The alethiometer stuff this episode is really good. This was a good soft bringing in before the next alethiometer scene where she really gets it finally. That's very exciting. But Ma wakes up to Tony being gone, which intercuts with Tony and Benjamin sneaking about places and getting into Coulter's flat. Uh, Ma wakes Lyra up. She fell asleep at the alethiometer wheel. The boys get into Coulter's office simultaneously. They're caught by the monkey. Yeah, there's a lot of lamps. I just want to point this out there. The lamps at uh, the entrance of Mrs. Coulter's apartment with those, like, three legs. There's a lot of them uh, on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, in case any of you were wondering or interested in a similar style. Oh, oh, uh, I'm glad you're bringing your obsession to the forefront. <laughs> I would never. I just, I think people need to know in case they want that. Uh, So there's a scuffle in their pursuit of Coulter. They end up getting some stuff before they're caught by the monkey. They're going through some paperwork. Tony gets out of a window, leaving Benjamin inside. And Benjamin is caught by Mrs. Coulter. His demon goes out in a sparkle and poof as he refuses to betray his family while she uh, takes him down. Her kill style is, like, kind of seductive and very creepy and then just animal rage. And she's, like, climbed on top of him and it's totally about power in this. And she, like, has him subdued and he submits to her. And, like, as you said, there's the thing about power and it's a very unnerving scene. And I'm going to go into this right now. Like, there's a couple of things that are worth noting that are interesting. So on one hand, yes, Benjamin is literally younger than Mrs. Coulter. And at first she calls him Egyptian boy. And I don't think that's very off-putting, right? Because, like, he theoretically is... He, he's a teenager. But when she says it, when she's on his back... It's so and then, racial. Like, with, yeah, Benjamin choking, there's a very racial and, like, racist element to it. And I think that it's written intentionally. I don't think that that was written carelessly. I think that's an intentional thing we're supposed to get. And, like, we already know that the books touch on ideas of xenophobia and stereotypes being untrue. We see it often with the rumors of how the Egyptians act and then it being debunked as Lyra gets to know them and realizes how they've been maligned. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the show touches on the elements of this. And like, we don't get as much of it in terms of the actual Egyptians, like in terms of the rumors about them from other people to contrast. Like 
with uh, our our actual experiences with them. Uh, that's not as highlighted in the show, but the way Mrs. Coulter just punctuates calling Benjamin only boy, not Egyptian boy, when she's on his back, she pauses and calls him that. This is a term that has historically been used, and even today, against men of color in the United States. It's used also in South Africa, and it's an insult especially towards black men and it's meant to diminish them it was very weird and then like as she was choking benjamin like i couldn't help but think of like eric garner right in new york city and how there have been a lot of media that also pays homage to him and like him dying under oppressive power structures and repeating the lines of i can't breathe as he suffocates under the new york police officers yeah this is an incredibly tense racial and political moment i don't think it's something that a lot of people would pick out just like that thinking about it but it very much so that punctuation of boy i mean that happens all the time there are just people hell a generation above us that use it still like normally it's very gross it's very demeaning and it very much so i mean if you even look at the egyptians ma costa was hired help to watch lyra right uh the egyptians are at best, in society, when we see them, even in this show, they're put as servitude to people in power, like Asriel or Coulter. Uh, Coulter's position and her looking down on this person, I mean, you and I talk a lot about that power that Coulter has gained from climbing the ladder and having to, you know, like, the the way she tried to manipulate Father McPhail when he visited her, and the way she didn't win, and the way she felt that defeated kind of feeling, almost. Yes, it's like, wow, being woman, this is what happens. But also, she's awful. She's evil. She's sacrificed every bit of her soul and heart to be able to do these experiments and things and have power over people. And it it was an emotional death that showed this portrayal of power and what it can do to people and how easily the monkey and Coulter snuffed the life out of Benjamin. It was very uncomfortable and it needs to be uncomfortable. And... Unfortunately, it is kind of serving for the Egyptians and Lyra, right? Like, his death, yes, we're sad about it, and they really did set it up well enough to make us feel something for it. But in all intents and purposes going forward, it adds more fuel to the fire for the Egyptians and Lyra to go at this hard. Knowing that Coulter is truly that level of just evil, it confuses the audience when it's sandwiched around a lot of this contrasting maternal stuff from Ma Costa and these vulnerable scenes of Coulter as well. But the grounding point is that she's bad, and it was an assault. We pawed at this a little bit very mm-hmm. softly last week and said some of the stuff that we've been seeing is borderline sexual assault, like uh, with the journalist with Adele Starminster. But this is truly a deep, physical, very sexual assault up until the death, and it's about power and control. It's not about anything but power and control. Her sitting on his back and pinning him down and making him submit is extremely apparent. Yeah, and I think that goes to highlight, like, Mrs. Coulter, for all her talk of inequality, isn't doing anything to change the system to make it better, right? Like, other people have pointed out, and and we didn't discuss this, but that in the scenes where we see the children who are taken, right, they're Egyptian children, a lot of them are children of color, they're the the children who don't have the same kinds of privilege as Mrs. Coulter, so I think that this is a scene that was written that way intentionally. And Lo Jatko Muir has shared with us some information about how some of the elements within the books are drawing on a past in the North, in some of those areas that where people were doing experiments and like practicing eugenics 
And a lot of that has its basis in racism. So I think that this is absolutely like an undercurrent within the series that it's addressing. Benjamin choosing not to speak, not to give anything away, and dying rather than betraying his family. That was a really poignant moment. Yeah, I switching gears like that he does so. It's kind of notable because a few scenes earlier, right, Benjamin was the one who was in the role of a very, very forceful interrogator. He knows what it takes to get someone to confess and like what's at stake for him. So he chooses death over the fate of the man that he just forced some information out of. Yeah, and in the books, Benjamin's death is taken care of through this crew of older Egyptian gentlemen going out to spy on Boreal at Whitehall in London, and Benjamin dies falling down a staircase, I believe, uh, or a stairwell. I think it works well to keep Coulter relevant in the episode, especially with the new motives they've given Boreal for season one and his arc of kind of being, you know, the antagonist in the Perry plot for now. Uh, I think this worked well. I really do. It it gave Coulter screen time, which was good for her contract. <laughs> and because yeah. she is the Lena Headey of the show, right? Like, she is Cersei Lannister for us. She is the reason we're going to tune in every week because her dresses get more ridiculous and she gets meaner and crazier. When you point out him falling down the staircase, I mean, like, that is kind of a funny, but I like it, adaptation of it's an elevator versus a staircase, right? Yeah. And Ma Costa, Fartacorum, and Lyra all talk about Tony. Lyra feels like she's responsible because, you know, she saw him sneak out. But Fartacorum explains, like, it's not your fault. Everyone told him not to go. And Lyra reveals that she has the alethiometer, and Fartacorum gives her some pointers as to how it worked. And he tells her that reading it is going to take years of study and many books to finesse. It's not going to help them now, though. And then he leaves, and she's like, you know what? I'm going to fucking do it. Lyra reads the alethiometer for the first time. Okay, boomer, is what she should have said to Farter for him <laughs> as soon as he was like, it'll take years, so right now it's not helpful. Okay, boomer. So I thought this scene was beautiful, like akin to Harry Potter at Ollivander's with the mm. wand. Uh, just an iconic scene. There's slow orchestrated theme playing close up on the alethiometer. It points to the snake for cutting the crucible for knowledge, and the beehive for hard work, and the wheels turn, finally pointing to the hourglass with a skull on it for death. Honestly, how anyone can tell it's a fucking beehive and that that's an hourglass with a skull on it, I... Oh yeah, all these symbols are so worn off. They look like my keyboard. They're like no letters. Yeah, and I'm just like, did you... uh, Maybe that's part of the magic, literally, right? Well, it is old, I guess. can tell what it is. I'm like, that doesn't look like anything. Uh, there have been, <laughs> there was a hilarious, I don't know if it was a tweet or on the Historic Materials subreddit, though. I think it was the subreddit, and I sent it to you, of, like, the alethiometer as emojis, and her asking, yes. like, who's my mom? And they put, like, the fucking, like, pointer finger and, like, the other, like, finger <laughs> emojis for, like, fucking... <laughs> It is kind of one of those things that you're like, dot, 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 can't believe she still doesn't know. (laughs) I'm glad they dealt with it this episode. Yeah. I I also like this line uh, where Lyra says about the alethiometer, like, that the master said, he said it tells the truth, not that I know how. She's kind of a funny double entendre. Yeah, she's a little liar pants. Little fiery pants. (laughs) Lyra tells Fartercorum of Benjamin's fate via the alethiometer, or tries to, she makes her way up deck, where Coram is like, go down into hiding. But she does not go down into hiding in time, and the spy flies interrupt them. They get one of the spy flies locked down in a cup, and one of them escapes back to Mrs. Coulter. 
he commands that they need to go north now due to this after uh, getting it into kind of a safer hiding spot for that spy fly. Yeah, I, it was a fun scene, seeing both Lyra mirroring Pan. Pan is adorable even when he's trying to catch a spy fly. Oh, absolutely. Very cute. Pan really had some really cute moments this whole episode. Yeah, a lot of people are sharing the gif of him yawning. Yeah, big mood. Pan yawning. Oh, oh my god, I melt. <laughs> Tony brings home evidence of the gobblers taking Billy. He comes back and he presents paperwork from Coulter's desk, included Billy's name on it, which kind of is the wake-up call to Ma Costa that she cannot deny it any longer. The gobblers have Billy and they're real. And then, of course, when Benjamin's fate is asked about, silence is the answer. Yeah. Bummer. Quick cut back to Billy. I, I did like the detail of Ma Costa sleeping with his little sweater vest. Oh. Sad. Fartacorum and John Fall then discuss Benjamin's body because John Fall wants to recover the body and Fartacorum's like, we can't. It's hers now. He's like, but if we have the witches and the right wind at our side and Lyra, who can read the alethiometer, they believe that they can get justice for him. So they set their course for Trollicent. It was a nice mini scene. I like that they're showing a lot of these smaller short scenes just to establish that these characters like interact off the page too. You know, like you're seeing the main yeah. stuff, but then you have a quick 10 second, 20 second blurb of just like, hey, this is happening and our characters are acknowledging it. Cool, moving on. Yeah. Lyra wants to throw the spy fly into the water, but Ma Costa stops her saying that it is a bad idea. It's just a bad spirit with a spell through its heart. And then she goes on to explain the Magisterium are even afraid of spy flies. Lyra is surprised Coulter broke the law to find out where she is using a not-Magisterium-approved fly. Costa tells her to keep it as it's a sign of her desperation, and that Fartercorum will weld it shut in a tin. Lyra and her discuss the North and the challenges that lay ahead for both of them. Lyra says she's ready to fight, and Ma Costa says that she is a remarkable young girl. I wonder... If this has some foreshadowing in it for other spirits with the whole bad spirit with a spell through its heart, like cliff gas or specters going forward, or uh, of course the underworld and then coming back and freeing some of those people that are stuck between realms. I think it'd be interesting. In the books it isn't that, but like, it could be. Yeah. Especially with like, maybe just like the things that aren't allowed using this. Mm -hmm. So Coulter is lounging around in some sexy emerald colored silk, Slytherin pride baby 2019 house cup can I hear you? Oh my god. <laughs> Make some noise. Slytherin head girl Mrs. Coulter. Oh my god. She kind of is yeah, though. Absolutely. Her and Asriel were head boy and head girl. Yeah totally and that's how they met. By head. Oh, 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 okay. Uh, Mrs. Coulter, I'm going to just move forward. She was lounging around because she's hungover, clearly. <laughs> While she's being hungover, Boyle comes around and, you know, interestingly, he doesn't bring her a fucking burger or a breakfast sandwich, which is what you should really do. You gotta hook up with better guys from hungover. Tinder, Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> the spy fly makes its way all the way back to her. It's broken, but it's still quote-unquote alive. Mrs. Coulter's pretty jazzed. She's like, I found Ly Lyra. And Boyle's like, what are you fucking doing? Like, this is not magisterium approved. You are crazy. They are right. Holy shit. Yeah. It's like, you're uh, off the rails, even though I too am doing off the rails things. Right. 
She's definitely doing things not in the name of the Magisterium. That is very set up in this episode. It's going to play well into that cave sequence eventually in the bomb. Uh, it's really lovely that they're creating these off-screen scenes to bring that adaptation to life. When you get to Marisa in the caves in the book, you're kind of sideswiped, right? You're like, yeah, makes sense that it's happening, I guess. But now it's like, oh, now it really makes sense why it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And then it ends with the Egyptians and Lyra. She's going, she's going past the docks and they're all getting in a boat. All right. And then uh, the Lonely Island plays in the background as they set sail off oh, into the wide shit. ocean. <laughs> the next stage of Lyra's adventure. Uh, she's got her flippy floppy. I'm on a boat and it's going fast pan. Actually, what's happening right now. <laughs> That's the soundtrack. That's what Lord wrote for us. Uh, instead of Kaiza, we've got a gear of Falcon. Um, so, lots to look forward to next week. This week was solid. Next week is another iconic episode. There's a couple shots from the trailer. If you haven't watched the trailer, definitely watch it that I'm kind of excited about. Uh, Coulter is standing in front of an alethiometer in one of them. Looks like the Magisterium's alethiometer. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I'm all about more alethiometers. I'm all about it. Uh, I'm really excited to think that it's being introduced in this season, like in front of us in an episode where it never touched the Golden Compass. So that's cool. I'm just glad that they're addressing that there are more of them. And like, you know, in the movie, they're like, there's only one left. And I'm like, but how, then how is the Magisterium going to do their power plays of their own Alethiometer? Well, they didn't. What about the fucking chess plays, <laughs> you know? We get Lee Scoresby next week. Oh. And Eoric. Do we? And Trollisund. Um, I'm very excited. You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda is playing Lee Scoresby. And I have a soft spot in my heart for him from In the Heights and Hamilton uh, and just generally things he's done. And he is going to make a great Lee Scoresby, but he did an AMA on Reddit this week. And he gave a few cool snippets of information, like Joe Tanberg, who is the voice of Eoric, actually played Eoric with a big bear head that he wore on his own head. So for blocking purposes and such. How cool is that? Interesting. I want background pics of that. That's the role that I want to play. Eoric with the big bear head on your head? Someone just putting a big bear head <laughs> on me. I'm excited about yeah. Hester. Um, yes. Very excited for Hester. There's been a lot of discourse, actually, in the last week. Some his dark discourse of people not liking Lin-Manuel as Lee, which I think is silly. I think it works great as an aeronaut from Texas. It could very much be someone who is of Puerto Rican descent like Lin-Manuel. It's showing some of the culture we see in Texas, in our world's Texas, so why not? Sam Elliott did a great job in the movie, but this is a whole new adaptation, so I'd like to see where they take it. Yeah, and honestly, like, in the context of this world that Lyra's in, and honestly in the fucking context of our own world, right? Like, in this world, Texas is its own independent state. It makes complete sense mm-hmm. to me, like, to have Man of Color be least scores be Like, literally, I don't know, brown people were there first, y'all. Right, they exist. Like, like being racist is great and all, I guess, but, like, it doesn't mean... <laughs> That they stop existing, like, just because you're neurotic. Like, it makes sense to me. Like, Texas has had a lot of cultures, like, literally the name comes from... It's a melting pot. Yeah, it's like a word, like, Tasha or something meaning friend, and, like, Kado, which was one of, like, the indigenous languages, right? Like, Well, what, now it means what do Dodge Ram want? with huge tires, Eliana. Oh, God. So... <laughs> Yeah, so, I don't know, I'm excited. I think from what we've seen of Lin-Manuel, Miranda, I think it makes sense, especially as they kind of bring a different take, right? 
a more grounded take to the His Dark Material series, which, like, has its moments in which we're like, yeah, I kind of wanted more of the childishness, mm-hmm. but I think that this is going to be a really good performance. Yeah, and he has some great energy. Uh, there was also a little discourse. Dakota Blue Richards, who played Lyra in the movie, she was on His Darker Material, so you can listen to that on Spotify, uh, the semi-official podcast, and they also had the master on his actor on a little bit ago. But she hmm. gave kind of her definitive take on Daphne Keene's Lyra, and I've seen it been displayed so uh, dishonestly, so clickbaity that uh, it's killing the world. Journalism's dead. Ask Adele Warminster. But uh, where she basically just said that she was really, she liked the rendition that Daphne Keene was bringing. It's a little more mature than what her role got to play, which actually kind of plays into some stuff you and I talked about earlier, that there's not as much Mm -hmm. of the child stuff going on. And, uh, I mean, Dakota was a little younger than Daphne Keene, and the Lyra in The Golden Compass is younger than this Lyra, for sure. Yeah, and I like Dakota's portrayal of Lyra, especially in some of the earlier parts. I don't think she brings the dramatic parts, like... Daphne Keen does yelling right out in the fields. Like, I don't think Dakota was able to bring that, but I think she brought a lot of that great spunk that we know of Lyra. Yeah, definitely. Lin-Manuel on Reddit today in his AMA said something that I thought you may not 100% understand, but you'll like. So, uh, anyone that has ever listened to In the Heights or seen In the Heights, amazing. Really, really good. And he actually said on Reddit that the song from In the Heights, When the Sun Goes Down, which is this moment where these characters who are kind of going into a long-distance relationship, one of them is going back to Stanford and the other is not, and they're talking about handling a long-distance relationship, they have kind of this first song called Sunrise where they start their relationship and it's celebratory, and this song is called When the Sun Goes Down. And there's a line that was in and a lot of this, actually, this whole song was very inspired by the Amber Spyglass. But one of the lines is, I'll think of you every night at the same time when the sun goes down. And Lin-Manuel says that it's a reference to a certain bench in Oxford. Aww. Yeah, I, uh, I, I was really just like, oh, I didn't know that, actually. And it makes total sense because I do love that musical. So check that out in the Heights if you have ever listened to it or seen it. Uh, the song. When the Sun Goes Down, is directly referencing the Amber Spyglass. Yeah, it is a long-distance relationship for, you know, a long-term. You know. Like, the rest of their lives. Ever. Forever. I still have hope. Forever. Well, until, like, all their atoms, like, merge. I have some hope still, man. I have some hope. What if? You never know. There's one more book. Well, I hope that they can use that power of imagination that... Zafania told them about, like, which is truer than, like, just making shit up. Like, Grumman was able well, to. hopefully Pan can find her shit. Yeah. Lin-Manuel said about preparing for the role that he read Once Upon a Time in the North, the standalone by Pullman about Lee and Yorick. Highly recommend. And that for the accent, he looked to his own cousins in San Antonio and Corpus Christi in Texas on the Mexican side. I thought that was great. Uh, and then he got some weapons training so he could feel like a, quote, ding-dang gunslinger when necessary, unquote. I love him. That's great. Yeah. I mean, what do people fucking want? They're literally from He's Texas. a fucking Texan aeronaut. Yeah. Like, these people are, like, are literally there. Anyway, something else that I think we might see or that I'm looking forward to next week, like, I kind of think that 
we don't see it in next week's trailer, right? But I do think we're going to get more Tony Costa. Because Benjamin dying was, like, literally his best friend dying. And I think that Benjamin is Tony Costa's Roger, right? And I think that I'd like to see how it impacts him as he comes to understand, again, his own version of adulthood. Realizing, yo, things come with consequences, especially as he has to go north with the rest of his men on a very dangerous expedition. Yeah, and it seems he's getting a bigger role, right? Tony Costa is going to have a much bigger role in season one than what he had in the books, kind of a background role, or what he had in the movie. So this is impressive, that they're kind of giving every character a purpose. Every little group has kind of a purpose moving forward. Yeah. Well, I liked this week's episode. I didn't like it as much as last week's, but I think it was still really solid for a number of reasons. On a scale of one to Sofinax, I'm going to give it an eight. Last week had more Sofinax. Oh my God. This week I give it an eight, but last week had a nine. I can only hope that next week I can give it a nine again, or a ten even, for Sofinax content. This is how I will be grading this show moving forward, so please tune in to Girls Gone Canon every week as we review the show, and I give you a rating about how much Farter Quorum's demon was in the show. I'm I'm not good at numerical ratings, so I'm just gonna be like, I liked it. I didn't. <laughs> My specific rating is only about Farter Quorum's demon. And I think that's a perfectly valid scale. It's more of a scale than what I'm giving, yep. so. Well, thanks for listening in, you guys. Uh, if you have not already, be sure to subscribe to us on podcast platforms where we put out a review episode for His Dark Materials every week of the season of the episode. Check us out on Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Acast, Stitcher, you name it. We're on them. Yep, and of course, keep up with us and check out some of the other things that we're saying about both His Dark Materials and A Song of Ice and Fire. You can find us on Twitter at GirlsGoneCanon, C-A-N-O-N, or shoot us an email right at GirlsGoneCanon at gmail.com. We, along with updating you on when the latest episodes are out, are sharing other information about both these series from other folks, and Chloe has fun gifts. Yes, especially of Sofinex. And we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Uh, all of our patrons are wonderful and have been so supportive, so supportive, in fact, to allow us to be able to do several series, doing A Song of Ice and Fire content and His Dark Materials content. Last month, we did put out a tell-all on the Golden Compass, what happened, what was edited in, what was edited out in the movie, and uh, our overall thoughts on it, directed by Chris Weitz. So check that out. It was a video episode on Patreon for patrons $5 up, and this month, we will be putting out an episode on House Valerian from A Song of Ice and Fire, so keep an eye out for that before the end of November, patrons. That is patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And we are thinking of at some point, we did a Patreon episode about the Golden Compass, and we are thinking of doing another one about the His Dark Material series covering the lantern slides that are at the end of each of the three main books. Yes. Look forward to more details on that coming soon to you guys. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Stay tuned with us. I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Thank you. Goodbye.